This week's Device Talks Weekly Podcast is brought to you by Device Talks Tuesdays. Join us on Tuesday at 4 p.m. You'll hear from executives from Locus Robotics, Ambu US, and Stryker about readying your medtech distribution for the future. Go to devicetalks.com to register. All right, you ready for this? Ready. this week's episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. As always, I'm joined by my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, the executive editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device. Mr. Newmarker, how are you today? Good to be here, Tom. Good to be here. <laughs> Chris and I are functioning on, on a lower energy than we typically do, so we may not be as zany, but we'll be just as lovable, I'm sure, as we typically are on this podcast. We'll try. We'll try. <laughs> so we have a, a, an interesting program today, and it's actually, it is a, a serious discussion about healthcare inequity. And I'm going to speak with uh, Camille Chang Gilmore. She's the Vice President of Human Resources and the Global Diversity Officer at Boston Scientific, and Michael Jaff, Dr. Michael Jaff, who's the CMO for the Peripheral Interventions Group at Boston Scientific. He was previously the president at a local hospital, local to me anyway, Newton Wellesley Hospital. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about uh, Boston Scientific's Close the Gap program, which was its, its intent, and its, and its very noble objective is to bring attention to the fact that not everyone in this country is getting equitable health care that uh, people of color and uh, people of fewer means are getting shortchanged in many ways. And uh, it's it's something that I should have been more aware of, but I wasn't aware of how, how bad it was. And, and I'm also embarrassed to say that I didn't know this program has been around since, since 2006. I thought it was something they were creating to sort of address a lot of the concerns about today. So Right. I know, I know that you know people and minorities have been definitely hit harder by the pandemic than, than others. But I, I guess I guess what's happening with the pandemic is just like reflecting something that has been you know, going on for a long time. So, so here's to, you know, here's to hoping that they can, you know, help prove this. Um, Absolutely. You know, and I would just add that, uh, you know, we're planning to do an article, uh, you know, off of this interview for the uh, October edition of uh, Medical Design and Outsourcing. That's our Women in MedTech edition that we do every year. And it's uh, it's run by our uh, amazing senior editor, Danielle Kirsch. But uh, I, I would say, like, uh, watch out for more you know, article more, you know, more content like this and in coming weeks as we, you know, roll out, you know, stuff that we're going to be using in that edition. Absolutely. Before even going into our uh, our highly desired and most listened to, no doubt, feature Newmarkers Newsmakers, where Chris is going to identify the top five newsmakers in medtech per our mass device page. We're going to share a, a little conversation or a bit of a conversation Chris and I had with Jeff Carp. He's the head of the Carp Lab. He's a physician and uh, at Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston and the inventor of many, many wonderful things. Chris and I had a chance to speak with him on our Device Talks Tuesday program. And uh, the theme of the conversation was basically overcoming uh, failure and overcoming shortcomings. And, and the clip we'll run in a minute. Jeff is really open about something he had to overcome as a child, which was a limitation in school. And I know it resonated with many people out there. I've heard from one MedTech exec who who emailed back and said that was me as well. And uh, many parents um, out there, I'm sure, will will connect as well because your kids are younger. But when your kids get into school and you're, you're faced with someone telling you that they're falling short in places, it could be very, very... Uh, 
troubling. So, and, and Jeff will tell the story of his mom really stepping up to help him. So again, as a, as an, as a dad and you're a dad of younger kids, it was really a great story. Yeah, it's definitely something any any parent could I, identify with. So it's uh, yeah, it's 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 inspirational to hear what you know Jeff went through. And we will we'll run that clip. We'll just have a very short bit. If you want to hear the rest of it, go to devicetalks.com. You can you can listen to the whole thing for free. And he goes beyond his childhood and talks about how he's operating his lab. And and I know a lot of people found it very useful. So let's hear quickly from Jeff Carp, head of the Carp Lab. Happy to be joined by Jeff Carp. Jeff, how are you today? I'm great, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having Excellent. me on your show. Really excited too. This is. Uh, I'm glad we. I'm glad we connected. I know you. You had spoken to Device Talks a couple of years ago before I, I joined, and uh, you and I connected on LinkedIn. And then it was just like, hey, would you do this? And you said yes, you would. So it's, it's a real thrill to have you here. And uh, I was equally thrilled by your insistence that we not have a PowerPoint presentation and just have a conversation. So we're gonna. We've got a little bit of a, a list of things we're gonna hit upon. Uh, but first, I want to just go over your, your background a little bit, and we can, we'll can we talk about it. Well, why don't we just kind of start to review it now? I mean, people can read through the bullet points, see all the things you've done, uh, see the, the companies you've launched. Uh, your your lab has led to tech, tech, technology that has launched several companies, raised hundreds of millions of dollars. And uh, I, I would like to just sort of, this seems like a good point to ask, did, was this your life's plan at the beginning? How did you get to be... Jeff Carp, the head of, of Carp Lab. I'm sure when you were a little boy, you dreamed someday I'll have a lab of my own. I think, you know, I, I think early on, I wasn't, um, I wasn't really good at too many things, I would say. I, I uh, had a lot of dentists in my family, and there were some doctors, and, and I was very interested in, in being a doctor, although I don't think I really knew what it meant to go through medical school and what a doctor's life really entailed on a day-to-day. But, but I was just kind of gravitated towards that. And I think um, I always wanted to build things, but I didn't really – you know, there, there really wasn't anyone in my life who was like a, a builder of things. So I didn't necessarily have like a mentor. And so I, I, I had this dream that that I was going to build a robot. And I kept, you know, like when there was like kind of paper towel roll ran out and I took the roll, I threw it in my closet and I had a whole stash of things there with this dream one day that I was going to build a robot. But I just had no idea what, what I, <laughs> I didn't even know what it was. What were you going to do with that robot, Jeff? Were you going to conquer the world? Was that the plan? I, I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, as I progressed, I was I was. Uh, um, I started thinking about biomedical um, type things like you know engineering and medicine and, and combining it, um, and uh, had a number of setbacks along the way. Um, and um, you know, I can happy to talk about those twists and turns. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, that is the the topic of the conversation, sort of coming back from uh, from setbacks. So, what are what's one or two of those that you uh, sort of want to delve into for us? Yeah, well, I would say, I mean, there was a, a number of key points, I think, in my life where I was struggling a lot. And, um, you know, one is um, when I was younger in in the second grade, actually, um, the teacher wanted to hold me back um, because um, I just, you know, didn't really, I wasn't at the same level as the other students. Um, and, um, and uh, you know, my, my uh, you know, eventually I, I, I wasn't held back. I, I went forward, but I I, uh, I just kept struggling and struggling with things and, uh, you know, was pretty much like a C and D student until I got to about the sixth grade um, when uh, my mom, who's really, you know, my, my biggest champion, my, my big supporter, um, thought that I should be tested for a uh, learning disability or now it's called learning difference. 
Um, and I don't know if anyone in the school, my school, I, you know, I grew up in a small city northeast of Toronto in Canada, and I don't know if anyone had been identified or there was just few people. So it was not a clear process. Um, and there was a lot of challenges along the way. Um, but eventually I did get identified as having a, uh, a learning difference. And um, what that actually um, did is, you know, and, and along the way, I, I, I got uh, some extra help. I used to go to this center called the Gallup Learning Center, and I, I remember mm -hmm. it quite well. And, you know, they would ask me questions and I would give answers and they'd say, well, how did you think about that? And it was interesting because that really, that, that question about how did you think about it, especially so early, made me go into self-reflection and really think about the process that my mind uses to get to certain answers. And that's actually stuck with me to today and I actually use that every day in my lab about, you know, when I talk about my lab, um, you know, people ask like, you know, what do you, what are you focused on? And, and the answer is actually, we're not focused on anything um, because, you know, I, I really think of the lab as, as focused on the process of medical problem solving, but as it applies to potentially almost any problem. So there's no disease focus and no, there's no technology focus. And I really think, and, and, and this really tracks back to this awareness that I was able to um, start to build early on by people asking me the question of how did you think about that? Like, how did you get to that answer? And how did you, you know, and, and so by learning that process, I was able to kind of hijack that process and develop a lot of coping strategies um, along the way. And so in grade seven, actually, I had a lot of teachers, you know, you know, depending on, on how you define the word, word failure. I mean, I had a lot of teachers, you know, they said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a doctor. And they said, um, well, you know, I, I don't think you have what it takes. You better set your sights lower. Um, so I countered oh, a lot of, a lot of resistance. Um, you know, I also recognize, you know, in particular in, 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 in subjects like math and things, you know, and I noticed that I actually noticed this quite a bit now with my kids. I have an 11 year old and a, and a 15 year old that, you know, when, when you're asked a specific question, the answer is dependent on how you interpret the question. And there's not a single interpretation, you know, for a lot of questions. And so, you know, by kind of engaging in this awareness process, I was able to really think critically about problems. And again, that, you know, fast track to today, um, you know, that's one of the things I think that really defines what we do is, is just how we think about problems and how we think about designing experiments to better understand problems. Um, so if we go back, you know, when I then went into the seventh grade, I had an exceptional teacher, which was uh, really important and, you know, had, had um, the support of, of my parents and, and my mom, you know, especially um, was, was uh, you know, really just, you know, incredibly supportive. And, and I went to, uh, and because I was identified through this big, big push, I was able to get um, extra time on my exams and, and my um, assignments. And that's all I needed. And I went to a straight A student and maintained pretty much straight A's until I got to um, undergrad. And, and I still encountered quite a bit of resistance along the way, um, which helped me to really become my own advocate. Um, you know, I had to battle a number of teachers and um, it, there were, there were some, some key challenges there.
All right, and we're back. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jeff Karp of Brigham Women's Hospital and Harvard, and of course, the Karp Lab. And again, if you want to catch the rest of that conversation, please go to devicetalks.com, hit the Device Talks Tuesdays tab, and it will be up there and uh, ready for you to listen on demand. Just register and you can watch it. It's on video. You get to see Chris, me, and Jeff Karp. Now, we still don't have any theme music, Chris. I, I need to work on that. But uh, everyone, if you could just imagine a drum roll in your head one more time until we can figure out um, how I've really got an to- idea, Tom. I've got an idea. You just wait till next week. Okay. I'm going to have something. I'm going to. All right, people. You hear it. You heard it. Chris has an idea. I have an idea. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> All right, but this week's new markers, news makers. So, all right, so number five, we've got, uh, let me see if I can pronounce this right, Nanovibronics. Their device gained an FDA nod for uh, importation to the United States. Their device is the Euroshield. And what this is, it's an ultrasound-based system uh, for preventing bacterial colonization and biofilm on indwelling urinary catheters. We've got a lot of attention for the uh, single-use scope podcast we did a couple of weeks ago. Uh, You and I both are getting contacted by many companies, and uh, that's been our most listened to podcast out there. So this issue of keeping devices clean and safe uh, is not going to go away. Very important. So solid number five. All right, Chris, what's number four? Solid number five. Number four is uh, is, is a regulatory story. FDA is updating its uh, adverse uh, event database uh, for, you know, the, um, you know, all the, the manufacturer and user facility device experience database, also known as MOD. But uh, what they're doing is uh, they're now uh, including, including new um, adverse event summaries so i mean this should hopefully um they're they're adding you know a data field called the patient problem code so this should hopefully going forward make it more you know clear you know why different problems are are happening and you know you know help provide more insights about um you know problems that we're you know having with you know various uh various devices out there um you know one open question that we're going to be uh looking into you know going forward is uh you know for now it remains unclear whether you know these uh you know patient you know problem codes are going to be um also, you know, made available for, you know, the, for previous reports, you know, everything from like 1997 to 2019, mm-hmm. um, you know, so we'll, we'll see how that goes, uh, you know, going forward, but at least, at least, you know, from now on, you know, we'll, we'll, at least we'll have these, these codes and they should, uh, you know, provide us a, a clear picture on um, what's going on. Well, that's another important topic and probably a conversation for Device Talks Tuesday in the future. Yeah. Good one. All right. Number three is a biggie as well. My goodness. Yeah. Number three, you know, this one we cribbed off, you know, the Washington Post and linked back to them. You know, the, the Post had a, you know, article this week about uh, N95 respirator shortages, still a problem. Um, you know, 3M's cranking them out, but we're still just not going to, you know, it, it looks like it's not going to meet demand as, you know, the fall and winter approaches. And, uh, you know the uh, the big thing the post cited was just that there's still just a lot of you know inter industry uh, you know a lack of inter industry cooperation on the production and uh, you know the uh, unlike with you know ventilators the Trump administration isn't using the Defense Production Act as much with the N95 masks so you know well um, yeah there's there's still a still a problem unfortunately number two is probably the best article I've ever read in my entire life. What's number two, Chris? Number two is, uh, this is a, a feature for me. I wrote this. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, Tom. I'm so glad you like that That was article. you? I that was me. I know I, that. 
Well, you know, really, this is like, uh, you know, we've just had like a ton of news uh, in recent months about, uh, you know, surgical robotics companies. Um, I mean, of course, a lot of them, a lot of surgical robotics, you know, took a hit amid the pandemic because, you know, hospitals were just so focused on, on fighting the virus. But I mean, this was a hot area before the pandemic. It's still a hot area. Um, intuitive surgical still is the um, you know dominant player we got like a lot of companies both big and small that are doing stuff in the space now and uh, I, I put together just a roundup of like you know 12 companies you need to know and it's, it's just really like I, I, I would recommend it as a good primer on yeah. just getting the lay of the land of you know where we are right now like, like we got intuitive we got big companies like you know Medtronic and J&J they're trying to get into the game you got you got yeah some interesting stuff going on ortho robotics with like big companies like Stryker and Smith and Nephew and Superbiomet and Medtronic you know they're in the spine space so you know there's J and J too so I mean yeah there's a lot of a lot going on so if you want a, just a good uh, good overview of you know all the different companies involved and what they're what they're up to at this point um, I'd, I'd recommend the article it's twelve surgical robotics companies you need to know fantastic you did a great job with that one it is a great overview all right now it's time for number one number one is of the new markers new new markers newsmaker Boston Scientific, you know, they might buy a, a, a AFib treatment startup called Fair Pulse. Um, they signed an investment agreement with them with a, that has an option to acquire. Uh, but, you know, the interesting thing about uh, Fair Pulse is that they, uh, you know, they're they're working on pulsed field ablation system for treating AFib. This is like kind of creating a therapeutic electric field to treat AFib instead of like kind of like the other like thermal energy source tech like you know, radio frequency ablation or cryoablation, you know, that, that, that's been out there. So this obviously seems to be like, like, a, like a little bit of a different, like kind of a different approach to, uh, you know, to treating AFib and uh, yeah, mm-hmm. we'll see where it goes, you know, but, but Boston Sci obviously uh, has, uh, has some interest in this. Excellent. And it's a nice segue into our next segment, Chris, Boston Scientific. As we mentioned up top, we had a, convers- Here we go. Had a conversation actually just earlier this morning on, on Thursday with Camille Chang Gilmore, Vice President of Human Resources and the Global Diversity Officer at Boston Scientific, and Dr. Michael Jaff, the CMO for Peripheral Interventions, about their very important, very impressive Close the Gap program. So let's kick off this interview with uh, these two very impressive people. Well, Camille Chain Gilmore and Dr. Michael Jaff, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, great to be with you, Tom. This is a, a topic and a problem that I'm sad to say I've been somewhat ignorant of. I mean, it's, it's health equity is something you, or inequity is something you hear about, but the numbers you present uh, with your Close the Gap program are startling and really, uh, really depressing. <laughs> so, this is probably a good time. I'm going to assume that there are others out there who aren't aware of a wider problem. So let's open up this conversation by just identifying the problem you're trying to address with Boston Scientific's Close the Gap program. Well, Tom, you know, Close the Gap is not a feel-good initiative. It really is a testament to the mission that underlies everything that we do as a company at Boston Scientific. And ultimately, we are here to improve the healthcare outcomes for all patients around the world. About 15 years ago, we developed this program. And throughout time, what we've been doing is supporting healthcare providers and their centers and practices uh, in an effort to really increase the access to care for populations, specifically the Black community, Hispanic community, and women. 
And um, just this past year, Boston Scientific strengthened its commitment by really expanding Close the Gap and really uh, investing resources at a time that probably most needed uh, with COVID-19 happening, where we see the heightened awareness and need for programs like this. This would be, I guess, a nice opportunity to, to let's talk about the particulars of the program. You, you addressed it briefly in your answer, but more specifically, uh, how are you addressing this problem through your interactions uh, with, uh, with providers? Well, the first thing that we're doing is through education and really looking at ways in which we can provide education to providers uh, to educate them not only about the prevalence of the disease state that resides within their community, but also educating patients on what are the therapies that are available to treat their disease states like heart failure, atrial fibrillation, or even stroke. We do this by another approach through data. We um, use our information. We have a repository of data where we can look at a catchment area by zip code of a location in the country and get really specific with even hospital systems and providers and educate them on the diseases that exist locally within their communities so that they can then even reach out directly and make the community aware of what they can do to treat them. And then it really is about partnerships. Uh, What we've been doing the last few years is identifying those partnerships that can reach the Black, Hispanic, and and women uh, in the community. And partnerships like Black Health Matters, or even working with um, local hospital systems to really build that trust in the community. Because here's the deal. With COVID-19, I can tell you that there is an erosion of trust. And I think many healthcare providers, many even hospital systems, recognize that close the gap can really be a part of their post-COVID-19 recovery strategy to really get back into those communities and and build that trust to say, hey, we are a resource for you. And more importantly, we want to provide you with the best health care. Where are you seeing that erosion of trust? I, I agree with the assessment, but I'd love to find out specifically where has the system, where do you see the system failing uh, in, in creating this, uh, this feeling of, of, of distrust? Well, you know, um, unfortunately, when you look at even just the 400 years of racism and sin <laughs> that we've been dealing with as a nation, plus coupled with then past sins of failed clinical trials, like what happened in Tuskegee with the Tuskegee trials, clinical trials, where they injected syphilis into black men and then didn't provide treatment. Those are are areas in which the distrust came about. And one of the things I'm so, so proud of about Boston Scientific is that in 2015, we started our first step in sure that we built back that trust by creating our own clinical trial called the Platinum Diversity Trial. And, you know, believe it or not, Tom, there was this fallacy that stents um, reacted different in people of color, Black and Hispanic. (laughs) I'd never heard that, really. I mean, it was just, uh, just crazy to think about that. And one of the things that we did is we said, you know what, we've got to prove this wrong. And, you know, we were hit with headwinds like, you know, oh, Blacks won't be compliant um, if, they, if they participate or Hispanics um, won't, um, you know, um, show up uh, and, uh, and follow up uh, when, if they participate in these clinical trials. And not only did we prove that to be just false, 
And we actually proved that not only would they be compliant, they'd be even more compliant. And that at the end of the day, we were enrolling 65 sites, more than 1,500 patients, and it was one of the best clinical trials uh, that we have ever seen with diverse patients. And it's really then heightened the game to say, why don't we have more Blacks, Hispanics, and women in clinical trials? And that's going to be a, another focus area for Boston Scientific as we go forward to, to, to be innovative, is to ensure that we have those constituency groups participate. Does that circle back to to the distrust that certain people don't want to participate in trials because of, of history? Yeah, you know, they, you know, in a lot, in a, it, it's history, Tom. Yeah. But then, in a lot of ways, they don't even know that the clinical trials even exist. So that's where it's going to take not only educating patients but also inve- really educating investigators and making sure that not only do, that we have diverse patients in the clinical trials, but we have diverse mm-hmm. investigators as well, physicians inviting the community to participate. Well, Michael, I won't ask you to defend the, the healthcare provider uh, community, but you, you've had experience there prior to joining Boston Scientific. You were president of a, a local hospital in the Boston area, Newton Wellesley, and now you're, I know you're on the board of your local hospital. Can you speak a bit to, I guess, the, what, we're, what we're talking about here? We're, we're just the, the need for education and information and, I guess, a reorienta- reorientation of, of perspective. Yeah, the, the truth of the matter is, Tom, we have tried and failed at diversifying patients' enrollments in major clinical trials. I'm a vascular guy. It's what I've done my whole career. I ran the vascular program at Mass General for many years before going to Newton-Wellesley. I sat on the steering committee of federally funded clinical trials where we explicitly said, all right, Tom, in this trial, we're going to get 20% of the population at a minimum to be Black, Hispanic, women, underrepresented minorities. We got 4%. Mm. And it's clear to me that one of the big reasons is that if you don't get the doctor who takes care of those patients to participate as investigators in those clinical trials, then the patients aren't going to do it. A, they don't know about it, as Camille said, but B, if their doctor doesn't support it, if they don't feel you know, empowered to participate and bring cutting-edge technologies that could be life or limb-saving to them, they're not going to consider it. And so we need to diversify the investigator pool that participates in clinical trials. And I have to tell you, Tom, that goes all the way back to high school. Mm -hmm. We need to recruit more kids, students, kids who are going into the STEM field to think about medicine as a breakthrough way to help us fix this disparity in healthcare. Generally, how are the clinicians and the investigators generally selected? I mean, I imagine it's in other, in other specialties, it's sort of who you know, it's networks, it's old, it's just, a, it's just kind of a circular rehashing of the same network of folks. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. You have to have some degree of infrastructure to participate yeah. in a clinical trial, right? You have to have an investigative review board that's uh, sanctioned by the Food and Drug Administration to review the trial and make sure that it's ethical. So things like Tuskegee never happen again. You have to have research coordinators whose job is largely to enroll the patients, provide the follow-up for the patients, stay in contact with the patients. This is not only a skill that you need training in, but it's overhead to the doctor's practice. And if Mm -hmm. that doesn't exist, and by the way, COVID doesn't make this any easier, right? Money is tighter in healthcare, not looser. 
it's going to be that much harder. But you're right, Tom. Ultimately, it's the same network. You see the same investigators who participate in trials because they have an engine that they've got to support. And the more clinical trials they do, the more people they can support. So we need to figure out a way to incentivize physicians who manage large populations of underrepresented minorities to want to break through this, to be able to develop the infrastructure, get the skills, and get their patients to believe that this is good for their health. Is there an opportunity to assist those hospitals that perhaps don't have those engines in place, but do serve those communities you're trying to reach to, to help them build their own engines and become part of this network? I think what we can do is we can educate and raise awareness of this problem. And that's what what uh, this close the gap, one of the things we're trying to do. There are obviously guardrails. There are certain things that manufacturers of devices that sell to hospitals can't do, right? Because then right. it's undue influence. But certainly being at the table, having the dialogue, raising awareness, talking to physicians who practice in the Mississippi Delta or in uh, you know Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, or Savannah, Georgia, these places where the prevalence of artery disease in the legs, the heart, the brain is out of control and the outcomes are so terrible to get those physicians to see the opportunity to turn this tide. That's our opportunity. Camille, what is the response from folks within Boston Scientific to this program? I'm sure they're supportive of its intent, but to Michael's point, and, and beyond that, I mean, a, a device company is selling something to a hospital. It's an, it's It sees a physician as a customer. Your leverage isn't that great. I mean, they could say, you know what, I don't want to deal with this. I'm going to go do someone else's thing. How, how does that fit into, the, into your relationship with, with clinicians? You know, I, I get that question all the time. And One of the things that I can tell you is that when we do talk to a hospital system, I think they find it ironic that we have closed the gap and it costs them nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, we're doing this because we know it's the right thing to do. But in the end, it goes back to our core values, which is making sure that we're serving all patients. And I think one of the things that we've been trying to do is to elevate our game in showing that we can complement the strategy of education by we just even recently um, created uh, some BSC campaigns. And one of the things that we wanted to do to make hospital systems aware that, hey, they can partner with us, close the gap to bring about education, but then we'll complement it through visual diversity. So we recently just um, started a campaign. We're having like real people, real images, people that live, that could reflect the, the population that is where the hospital system is. And we created a campaign that's aimed at really um, making these resources available and offer a specific pathway for healthcare providers to take actions and to fight the health equity. We've been doing it through kind of a multi-channel campaign where we have um, not only interventional cardiologists, electrophilic physiologists, and even administrators. But one of the things that we've made them aware of is that this is, this is not essentially about Boston Scientific products. If we happen to sell them, fantastic. Uh, but that is not the primary motive uh, for doing this. And, and we recognize that there are certain markets where the hospital systems can have impact, like Dallas, Detroit, New Orleans, and Minneapolis, especially with what just happened with the death of George Floyd, making them aware that they can use and leverage Close the Gap to have that reach. And, and to really, 
you know, be that voice to say, you know, not only is this about addressing the healthcare disparities, but also the systemic failure and empathy failure that has existed within healthcare for years. And by bringing visibility to it and not being apologetic for it, I think we're bringing a level of consciousness that, hey, you have Black, Hispanic, and women in your community that are not being served and close the gap can help you serve them through education, by helping you identify them for clinical trials, as well as identifying the partnerships that we can use to reach them even further. You know, Tom, uh, Tom, one of the things just uh, we, we've got statistics on our side, unfortunately, right? Aside from all the things that you've heard, September's Peripheral Artery Disease Awareness Month, which is artery blockage in the legs. And my whole career has been spent educating the public on PAD. But the truth of the matter is underrepresented minorities and particularly black populations in the Southeast and Southern Delta area of the United States has epidemic rates of diabetes and peripheral artery disease. Their rates of losing limbs without even being considered for treatment to save their limb happens in exponentially high rates compared to white, similar age counterparts. And so this is really a crisis that unfortunately COVID has exposed even worse, right? So COVID has shown that twice the, at least twice the population that are black or underrepresented minorities suffer from COVID and serious complications of COVID than their white counterparts, counties in America that are just overwrought by this. And it's not going to get better. The economic impact to those communities is overwhelming. So it's become now uh, something where we just have to deal with once and for all. And, and healthcare inequities just makes that easier for us to talk about from a statistics standpoint. And Dr. Jaff, I'll just um, add to those stats. Unfortunately, you know, the facts are this. Hispanics represent 18% of the population, but are in less than 1% of clinical trials. Fact. Blacks represent 12% of the population. I have the highest rate of heart disease but are in less than 5% of clinical trials. In fact, women wait 30% longer to seek medical care um, uh, than male counterparts. This is the answer to trying to address it. Can, is it the one and only answer? Probably not, but it's definitely a start. Yes, that's my question. When I, when I first learned of this program, I thought it was timely and, 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 and necessary, especially with all that's happened. And then I was surprised actually to learn that it's been around since 2006. So I guess my, my question to you is, is this approach working or, or, or are we going to be seeing a renewed vigor to this given all with, with COVID and, and, and the killing of George Floyd? Is this a, a new effort that you think will, will, will move us to a point where we haven't yet gone? You know, Tom, I think it will move us. Um, you know, one of the steady and slow wins the race. Um, and one of the things that the team has always heard me say um, in my bigger role, um, not with just health equity, but all things community and diversity and inclusion, is that this is going to take progress over time, not overnight. And you've got to be willing to put in the work over time to ensure that it moves from continuous improvement to sustainability and then industry leadership. And I think we're headed toward industry leadership with Close the Gap. We're showing that we're in this for the long haul because of even when we started the program. I mean, this was, this was started when it wasn't sexy to do this, you know? Um, and, and when we saw the need and said, you know what? We're going to hit it on head on and not be apologetic for it. And um, look, at, look at where the world has taken us today. 
who would have thought that Close the Gap could be that integral part of a post-COVID-19 recovery strategy? Who would have thought? Uh, for anyone, whether it's a hospital system, um, whether um, even um, a healthcare provider, uh, or even a patient, uh, but it is. And I think uh, what we're recognizing is that um, our methodical approach um, has worked well. You know, initially we were going to churches, we were doing the grassroots kind of things, going to churches, going to barbershops. And then we realized, you know what, there's a trust element there. They trust the pastor, they trust the barber. <laughs> they may not trust Boston. <laughs> so how do we build that? <laughs> trial and error. We had to figure it out. But yeah, we just couldn't show up at the barbershop and say, hey, we're Boston Scientific. We want to we wanna help you with your heart disease. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> uh, well, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's a great point. But I guess like, uh, this is, and I'm sorry, to, to, I have trouble articulating my question, but I have two more. Okay. Uh, number one, uh, we, you know, since the killing of George Floyd and over the summer, we, we've had a lot of statements from other med tech companies about their support for diversity. And I think it was largely seen as more of a baby of an employment, just a, a personal treatment issue and, and less so. I've had it raised once before the, the, the inequity of healthcare. care. Uh, but there is there, there are all of your, your, your colleagues and competitors have taken public stands to push equity forward to, to be at the forefront or, of it. Are you seeing other programs out there? Are you reaching out to other parts of industry? Because it seemed like this would be most effective if you're all rowing in the same direction. You know, um, I haven't reached out, um, but I've had others that have reached in, right? And asked mm -hmm. us, how did we get this started and how did we uh, do this? I, I have to say one of the proudest moments of my career at Boston Scientific was when our CEO, Mike Mahoney, and the executive committee created an open letter and wrote that two days after George Floyd's death, and not only wrote an, uh, a letter um, that created a stance as far as where we stood regarding racism, but also uh, made a commitment to $2.5 million uh, post that to say, we will play our part to combat racism. Uh, we know, like I mentioned, it's a 400-year-old sin. We're not going to, you know, tackle it tomorrow. Uh, it's going to take some time. Mm -hmm. But, um, we, you know, one of the things is we put our money where our mouth is, but more importantly, our actions were uh, to meet those. And, you know, I mentioned to someone the other day, I said, the one thing I love about Boston Scientific is we listen, we learn, and we act. That's, that's just what we do. And we've done that and evolved Close the Gap not only from a cardiovascular program to peripheral to also even colorectal cancer. And we were even looking to expand it to uh, another division, which is neuromodulation, because we recognize that we need to go after those patients in all those areas, those disease states, and make them aware of what possible. Would this be more effective if other med techs were developing similar programs? You know, I don't know the answer to that, but I think, you know, there is, there is power mm -hmm. in numbers, right? Um, so if there were other med tech organizations that wanted to create something, um, they should. But, you know, I, I was on a panel the other day, a med, a med tech women panel, and um, one of the representatives from um, one of the med tech companies mentioned that they tried this, but it didn't take off in their organization. Mm -hmm. And they had a lot of resistance because of 
One, lack of education, understanding about the constituency groups. And it takes a while to do that. You know, one of the things that we actually did and had to step back is understand the constituency groups in which we're trying to reach. When we're going to black women and black men, what, what do they want? When we go to Hispanic men and women, what do, what do they need and want? When we go to white women, what are they looking for when it comes to um, therapy and what do they trust? Again, this all goes back to trust. And we actually took the time to do research on each constituency group just so that we could understand how should we meet them? How should we approach them? And what is the best way that we can even instruct the hospitals and, and physicians to do that? We also even, uh, as a company, launched unconscious bias training that uh, was required for all our employees and is part of their learning plan. And you would, you would be surprised as to how many people are not aware of the unconscious behaviors or the microaggressive behaviors that they are putting out there and, and not even know it. And I think that's also part of it, the, the education. How do we make sure that patients or physicians understand how to even approach the various constituency groups? Right. And just final quick question. I know you need to go, but in looking at the, your, your, your documents uh, of, the, of the reasons listed for people not seeking care, I think number one on three out of the four conditions you're targeting was cost of healthcare or insurance. Is that really the underlying an underlying problem, an overall problem that, that needs to be addressed. I know that's not something that Boston Scientific can handle, but where does the, the lack of insurance, uh, pl- how much of a role does it play in all of this? You, you know, Tom, I, I struggled with this uh, throughout my career in, as a practicing doc and then a hospital administrator. There's just no doubt in my mind that because uh, in many situations in the United States, one illness wipes out any residual savings that a family has. They make choices between the prescription medications that they have to fill and their rent and food and car payments and heat payments uh, that they have to make. Those are, those are crises. Uh, and, you know, you can argue which healthcare policy is the most effective, but at the end of the day, for a country this great, to have people have to worry about choosing between their health care and the food they put on the table, that in and of itself shows you that this is a major issue facing the United States. And, and that fear keeps people away from the doctor. Great point. Well, thank you both uh, for your time and for, for shining a light on this and for, for leaning in and trying to, uh, to identify and, and create a solution. And, and thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Tom. Tom, it's a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Well, I learned a lot from that conversation. I hope uh, hope you all did as well. Uh, it's a very important issue that uh, Boston Scientific is stepping up to uh, to try to bring to shine some light on and to provide some some answers for. And uh, seems like it would be a good opportunity for other med tech organizations, if they're not already doing so, to uh, to follow up. Because that's one thing. At the end, we talked a bit about the role of insurance in people or, or the cost of healthcare being uh, being something keeping people away from care. And that was something that Nadim Yared brought up on a podcast interview a couple months ago, that when we talk about healthcare yeah. equality, and when we talk about just equality for everyone, that access to healthcare is is a very important issue. And it's something that uh, I think we need to find a way to address. Well, it's literally a matter of life and death. I mean, it's yeah. not... Yeah, it's, it's not um it's not access to the jelly of the month club here. It's, uh, you know, this is important stuff. And once again, COVID has uh, shined a, a black light on, on that as well. So on that happy note, 
On that happy note, well, it's 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 important work that needs to be done, and and we're happy to 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 bring some attention to it, and it's certainly something we'll follow. Yeah, I mean, it's um it's crazy to think that I mean one one of the things I've always been really uh, proud of is that is that my uh, my dad was in a um, anti poverty protest at the National Mall in '68 that MLK uh, was organizing before his, you know he was assassinated, but. Um, you know, I mean, here we are decades later and we're still grappling with all, all these types of, uh, of issues. But, you know, I mean, hopefully we're, you know, doing some good here with, you know, highlighting more about, you know, what needs to be done in healthcare. That's a great point. I was to, to that point and then we'll, we'll move on. I was doing some research on this and I came upon some reports written on this very topic and they were from the 70s and the 60s. And you're like, this is crazy. We're, oh, my gosh. We're, we're talking about the same things our, our parents yeah. were talking about when they were our age. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Device Talks weekly podcast. Uh, once again, if you uh, want to hear more from Jeff Carp, go to devicetalks.com. You can find the Device Talks Tuesdays tab. You can uh, just sign up and watch that whole interview for free. Really, really great stuff from, from Jeff Carp. And uh, don't forget this coming Tuesday, we have a, another Device Talks Tuesday called Readying Your MedTech Distribution for the Future about the uh, future challenges of basically distributing your medical devices. We'll have executives from Locust Robotics, Stryker, and Imbu US, in fact, Steve Block, uh, who was on the podcast just a few weeks ago, will be uh, on that panel as well to talk about uh, how Imbu has sort of helped, has worked to overcome any sort of challenges and, and difficulties in uh, in distributing its its products during uh, during the COVID era. So that's it, Chris. How can folks find you on social media? Hey, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Chris Newmarker, just like a new marker, and you can find me on Twitter at Newmarker. But always happy to talk. Awesome. And I am also on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi. I am on Twitter at MedTechTom. We would very much love to connect with any of you and all of you. We'd love it if you would share this podcast on Twitter, on LinkedIn. And if you do so, please tag Chris and myself. We'd love to be part of that conversation. Also, please do tell your friends if you're enjoying this podcast, let them know that we're out there and that we're talking about MedTech. And finally, please do subscribe. That way you'll get this podcast sent directly to you. By the time we post this on LinkedIn and post it up on Mass Device, We've already had several hundred people listen to it. So uh, might as well be one of those uh, those first come, first serve types of folks. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast. That's it, folks. Thanks for tuning in on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Catch you next week. That works. That's a wrap. <laughs>